Hey everybody, it's Matt. Um, before we start the episode, I just want to mention something that we plug at the end of the episode just to make sure that you hear it. On Wednesday, March 17th, Hillary and I will be doing participating in a live stream discussion of Kim Stanley Robinson's work with Sean Estelle from Shred Magazine and Daniel Aldana Cohen, co-author of A Planet to Win from Verso Books. Um, this is part of ShredFest, which is uh, the launch of Shred Magazine, which is an online space for leftist organizers, activists, authors, writers, scientists, all these kinds of good people that you guys love so much. Um, it's going to be, again, uh, you can find details for it on their Facebook event page. Um, you can just search Shred Magazine or it's facebook.com slash Shred Magazine SPC. Again, it's on uh, Wednesday, March 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern. That's 7 p.m. Central. Um, and it should be a fun time. We're going to have a freewheeling conversation about uh, everybody's favorite science fiction author, Kim Stanley Robinson. So, Hope to see you there, and on with the show. Matt and Hillary. Oh my God. <laughs> I try to make it worse every time. You're good. You're good at it. You're good at it. Yeah. Um, after I, I should count how many episodes we've actually done because it's a lot. Um, yeah. So, like several thousand, would you say? Yeah, several thousand. <laughs> um, it's the Kim Stanley Robinson read along podcast. Obviously, you guys know this. That's We're right. this is the first episode episode one, we did episode zero of the new season about uh, shaman or shaman, depending <laughs> on where you grew up in America and where what your accent is. Depending on how um, Midwestern you are. Yeah. And uh, this is uh, Stan's book from 2013, uh, a novel of the Ice Age, correct? A story correct. of the Ice Age? Uh, uh, a novel of the Ice Age. See, I already have a problem with that because there weren't any novels in the Ice Age, you know? Uh, yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's my biggest problem. <laughs> it's so fake. There weren't novels in the Ice Age. <laughs> um, this isn't realistic. I find this very unrealistic. <laughs> like, oh my God. Oh God. Okay. Um, this, this day, uh, this episode, we're going to, we're going to, I think we're going to go through like two chapters per episode should be our, our, our goal. Yeah. And I would say just like right off the bat, cause usually our practice has been like reading one chapter or one part per episode. And I don't think that, um, our, uh, the inclination to do two per episode this season, um, reflects at all on like the kind of like how interesting we find this book or how much there is to say about it. I think it just is probably just a concern about being long-winded <laughs> more than anything else. Um, because I think that like, if we, if we determined to, we could definitely talk for an hour on each chapter. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think so. Um, I think so too. 
but just in the benefit, I think of, uh, in the interest of like listenability um, and, and being bored with our own voices, um, we, we, we're gonna kind of go a little bit more, um, I don't know what would be the word, breezily or synoptically. I don't know if that's the right word at all. It's probably not the right word. Yeah, I mean, uh, holistically. Yeah, we'll we'll see how it, we'll see how how it goes. It seems like I mean, one thing I was thinking is that this. Um, I think that this book is a very. I think it's a very absorbing read. Like you really get very absorbed into the world, and I think yeah. it is a. Um, because of that, I think it is a faster read than, for example, Ministry. Yeah. Which is not to say that, um, uh, which is not to say that this is not also a novel that is like full of ideas. I'm just, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is like, it is a novel that's full of ideas, but I think the, my guess is that people might read it a little bit faster than they read Ministry and thus, you know, want to listen to like uh, episodes that were on slightly longer chunks of the book. Yeah, I think that's true too. I mean, because definitely that was my experience of, of reading it. I, it, it, it's much more. It's in the. It's kind of in the vein, I would say, of like Red Moon, because it is a standalone novel, and then also uh, just much more breezily. Not breezy. I keep saying breezy, but like it's bree. It's 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 easier to read. It's faster to read because it is more of an adventure story and like a kind of a contained, um, you know, story um, with a kind of narrative drive about like. The main character, Loon, um, becoming the shaman of his tribe. Um, yeah, yeah. And so we're going to talk about the first two chapters, which are called Loon's Wander and The Wolves at Home. Right. And then I guess if this episode ends up being like 300 hours long, we'll change our minds and we'll just do one chapter per yeah. episode, right? So Definitely if it's 300 hours long, <laughs> um, we've done something wrong. <clears throat> um, yeah. So... Um, Cool. So Loon's, Loon's Wander is the first um, uh, chapter and it's about him going out on his kind of uh, on his wander, on his like manhood ceremony quest. His coming, of, yeah, his coming of age. Coming uh, of age. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, the, you know, the chapter, um, one, one of the very few moments in this book, I think where you get like um, a, a little, uh, uh, sort of like pullback, like moment of like uh, getting drawn out of the text is the very end of this chapter when he gets back and and the Heather, the herb woman says, now you're 12. Right. Uh, because you've just seen, you know, we've just seen him through like a pretty incredible like series <laughs> of challenges to his own survival. Um, and I think you definitely picture him being like, at least 15 when you're reading it, probably 16. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I definitely picture him being like a little taller, a little more developed, <clears throat> um, just a little more capable uh, and of like having to potentially like fight a Neanderthal or run <laughs> from a lion. Um, <laughs> it's really like yeah. a Mowgli, like <laughs> jungle book type thing. I mean, Stan has also said like that it's his kind of like Huckleberry Finn fantasy too. Um, so that like tracks in terms of like the age, yeah, the age of the of the main character. Well, and just uh, to say, like, I think I think a cool thing about this book is that one. I mean, one thing that I think it kind of does is um, that I think is very estranging and and like in that way, like science fictional. Is it is it does like 
um, push against or open up um, certain kinds of um, like, I don't know, just like normative or assumed ideas that we have about temporality, like about the way in which like time unfolds in the course of a human life, particularly. So like his age, you know, which seems like so young to us, like he couldn't be a man or whatever at age 12. Um, like, um, that's also really, um, uh, ultimately like kind of reframes for us, like what we think happens in the course of a person's life and what we think like the ages or the epics or the stages of a person's life are supposed to be. And, and similarly, I think the, the world that we get, um, you know, although they are, they are keeping, they do keep a kind of like calendrical time based on, uh, based on the moon. Um, uh, dis despite that, like we see like, the day-to-day -day and the month-to-month -month and the season-to-season -season unfold in a way that is uh, incredibly different from, mm -hmm. um, from the regime of clock time or, or wage time that we live under. And that, that to me is like, that I think is a very cool part of this book that like, you're just in this very different kind of temporal space, which is not a space where there isn't measurement and there isn't like thinking about time and how time passes. But what it means um, and what counts and how it's experienced is just like radically different. Well, the the relationship to time is, I mean, for lack of a better word, a more wild one. Um, let, I mean, it's not domesticated. I mean, you, I've been reading on your recommendation, the James C. Scott Against the Grain book, uh, Deep History of the Early Estates. And <clears throat> this is really, the book is about like the domestication, not only of beasts and, and flora and fauna, but uh, the domestication of, of man, of people, like mm -hmm. how we became sedentary, domesticated creatures. And in this world, like nothing, there's hardly anything that's domesticated in 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 the in the sense of like obviously there's no state there's it's a pre-state society and like because of that and 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 as a result of that there's no domesticated time like the calendar runs based on when the ducks return right that's when spring starts is when the ducks return not because of a specific you know moment in the earth's rotation around the sun or whatever right um and yet, despite that, there is still the kind of like impetus on the part of Thorn, uh, the sh the current shaman and other shamans uh, uh, in the other tribes to try to, you know, mark the passage of time and to attempt to predict and tame the calendar in a way uh, or to tame nature in a way that will allow them to continue thriving and surviving um, in this kind of like ice age world. Um, something, something that I think we'll end up talking more about is that um, the cycle of the year and like what people do like on a daily basis, like the way that they divide tasks up, but also how much work there is um, and what kind of work there is and what kind of leisure there is. Um, that actually varies a great deal, like from, from season to season and also from month to month within the within the seasons, right. um, uh, which is a very different, um, so, uh, like the idea of like the day to day, right. You know, dailiness, um, not just the nine to five, but that like your basic unit of time is like, you know, wake daytime work, sleep, 
nighttime, no work, right? Which is like fun, you know, fundamentally a kind of uh, division of time that has existed for human people for a fairly long time, right? But this, but in this, uh, in this um, way that they live, like that is actually not really how things are far more various than that, mm-hmm. right? And far more attuned to what's going on, the specific things that are going on in their world. So like time and like um, uh, environment and place are like really bound up with each other in a very different kind of way. Um, I also think in this first chapter where um, Loon is out on his wander and he has to stay out until the full moon. Um, and one of the things that I, I really like like about this is that like, there is always kind of a question of like, how do you know when it actually is the, fu- the, full, <laughs> the full moon? Yeah. And, you know, like he's always kind of like, okay, I've got three more nights. Well, maybe it's four. And then there's the like worry about how like, you know, the gibbous moon, like almost full, like you could mistake it for full, but then he would look like a total fool if he came back early and he'd look like an even bigger fool if he came back a day late. So this kind of like both like the the major guide, you know, up there in the sky is also like requires and requires interpretation, like, and and requires a little bit of guesswork. And he, you know, spends part of his time thinking like, okay, I got to make sure I got to time, I got to time this right. You know, like I have to return both like kind of triumphant and with all of my, with like the best gear I can have on. So it's really interesting the way that like that plays out too, because, and, and, and it ties into something that we've already, you and I, uh, not not yet uh, as in, in the recorded form but like <laughs> the way the way that abundance and scarcity are framed here like we're we're told or like conventional wisdom has it that um capital there that um or and like apologists for capitalism basically say you're born poor uh mankind was in a state of abject poverty before capitalism was invented and then um poverty is the greatest or uh, capitalism is the greatest like um eliminator of poverty ever invented here we're we are introduced to a world of of abundance of like periodic scarcity of like the need to like save over the winter of a, of this kind of thing but we are introduced to a world of like everywhere abundance so that not only do does loon on his wander um have to come back and survive, right? It's not about a matter of bare survival in a world of scarcity. He has to come back in, he has to come back with uh, the fanciest like clothes <laughs> that he can find. Um, he needs a necklace. Um, he needs, you know, as much excess as he can uh, uh, acquire. Um, and, and, um, and so like, there's not only, so yet like, yes, scarcity exists, um, but it exists like as a kind of, um, marker of your failure to do something to like, to, 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 um, thrive in this, in this scenario where there's lots of stuff around. Like he, there's a certain points where he's like, well, you know, uh, I may have to, I can eat this like, uh, deer for like three more days. And then it's going to start to be bad and I won't be able to, to eat it anymore, but that'll only give me three more days until I have to go back and I can definitely survive on like wild onions. So that's not a big deal. Basically, I just need to avoid getting eaten by a bear or something like that. Right. Um, and so it's not only, and it's like, not only a matter of abundance of like nature, like there's tons of stuff around for you to like, to, to, 
survive on, but there's an abundance of skills too that he has. Like he's able to do a lot of stuff um, that like, he, he's like, you know, trained in an uh, amount and diversity of knowledge that is completely foreign to us under modernity, yeah. which is like fascinating and amazing to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I the almost the first thing that he does is because on his first night out, he's not able to make a fire um, because he has in his head if he gets into a, a grove of trees, there will be something that can that he can light on fire there, but there isn't any good flammable material. Um, and so he's extremely cold. Um, but one of the first things he does is to make himself an entire suit of clothing out of bark, um, yeah. which is just like, uh, and of course, and he's like, you know, this is like not the best clothing. Um, it's not the warmest and it doesn't look the best, but it's going to keep me warm enough. Um, which is right. just this amazing, like, and the, this whole chapter, you just keep seeing, I mean, sometimes you see him panic. Um, you know, sometimes you see him like freak out when maybe he could have been calmer, but like, you know, uh, uh, but most of the time what he's doing is just like exercising this, just like, um, I don't even know what the word is for it because it's not just like this amazing array of skills, but also skills that are overlaid or entwined with this incredible knowledge of the place that he's in and how the weather changes and the light changes. And so just like so deeply, um, just so skills that are so deeply immersed in the, in the place, um, uh, in responsiveness to the place where he lives. And it's really like a kind of, um, uh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing picture of like an environment, an incredibly intelligent environmental creature, right. Who like knows, knows his environment deeply and also is able to think about it because he also, you know, not only like um, gets high and has something of a kind of like dream quest, um, but he also, uh, you know, thinks a lot in kind of like, um, I don't know, like po poetic terms about the place where he is and its beauties and the beauties of the other, the other animals there. I was going to bring this up too. And I, um, that um, in con so like in ministry for the future at the very beginning of the book and throughout the book, but the, the beginning of the book is introduced um, as I argued and we talked about several times, there's like an allergy to analogy and metaphor uh, and simile in ministry for the future. Like it's no longer time. It's, it's, it's not the time anymore to think about like um, romanticizing comparisons uh, with you know, our current situation, it's time to like face reality head on. And here in Shaman, it is full of analogy and simile. And it's not in a romanticized way. It's in a way of like, this is how these early people relate to their environment. Mm -hmm. They compare themselves, Loon compares himself to all the different animals in the woods that he finds, to the raven, to the eagle, to the deer, to the marmot, to the otter, to the beaver. And he finds, um, uh, uh, commonality between himself and these animals in the, and, and he derives lessons from them. Um, and he knows, um, kind of, uh, how to behave in the world based on how he has observed and been taught how these other animals behave. Um, and whenever he finds, uh, or kills an animal, um, he thanks it, you know, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Like yeah. there's this kind of like, um, 
and 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 you know that that you know it just makes me think of like just the concept of alienation in general um like definitely marxist alienation from our labor but also just alienation from ourselves and from the world around us and here there's not that sense of alienation there's a sense of like deep familiarity of like family resemblance resemblances and a rec and like mutual recognition or um a recognition of a kind of mutual dependency um uh and yeah, and, and like grace and dignity and all of these these time type type of uh, of things that our world is just kind of lacking. And again, I want to. I mean, I I, I kind of want to like lean on the idea that it's not a romanticized version of it yeah, either. Yeah. Which I think is a really tricky line romanticizing this deep past. Um, you're telling it in a realistic way, but then at the same time, it has virtues that we like lack and envy uh, from our perspective today. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. I, I think that like, um, you know, another thing that we talked about in ministry and that we've talked about in others of um, Stan's books is like the, the sense of the need for um, something that can provide um, uh, like a spirit, uh, for want of a better word, a spiritual connection, right. To the planet, to our planetary being, um, and, and to our, um, you know, our shared lives shared with all kinds of other living and non-living things on the planet. And like, you know, this, this is a world in which like, um, in somewhat, you know, like there is a spirit, there is a spirit world here. Um, but there's no hard and fast barrier between like, um, the spirit world and the waking world or the, you know, the, the world of ordinary life, because like animals, certain, certain kinds of animals are gods. Um, uh, they're that they were once pe that bears were once people is simply just like an obvious thing. Um, the sort of like, um, uh, the spirit can like just manifest itself and does manifest itself in the world in all kinds of ways. And those are not ways that like, um, despite, despite, you know, like the taking the Artemisia to, to have the like vision, to have the kind of like visionary contact, like all of, we see with Loon that like, this is just like available all the time. Right. You know, that like, there is no kind of, um, uh, there, there is not a sort of like secular religious distinction in play in any way. And even though the shaman is a figure who matters a lot here, um, really the shaman is not, uh, not a figure of something like a privileged access to the spiritual, um, but something else like a different, a different kind of way of thinking about like, um, knowledge and imagination and creativity um th than that right i mean the shaman is not a priest yeah i mean he's not a priest um but he's and he's not a scientist and he's not an artist but he's all three yeah at the same time and and there's not and it's not that there's no division of labor in this society either because Thorne, the shaman has, you know, has specialized knowledge, like he has specific skills and things that he mm -hmm. alone does. Um, whereas other people are, but he also hunts with the group and he used to be a much better hunter than he is now, but he's only a bad hunter now because he's older. 
but he knows the animals really well. So what I'm saying, what I'm getting about with the division of labor is that there's just much more of a concept of um, from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. Like Thorne is better at doing certain things than others. Um, Heather is like drawn to um, more of the like, you know, the materialist kind of interaction with the world. She's not interested in dreams the way Thorne is. Um, she's interested in things that you can see. Um, and then like, I don't know, uh, and then like this character Schist, who we don't really, you know, he's a very much of a side character, but he's not the head man, but he's kind of the head man, but he really isn't the head man, but he's decided that his thing is like to keep track of their stores of their, of their provisions over the course of the winter and kind of know how much everybody's going to need to be rationed out and how much we're going to need to like, how much elk we're going to have to like, you know, save for the winter and things like that. But no one has like elected into that position and he doesn't seem to have any power really about it. It's just been decided that he is drawn to that kind of like work, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's really the sort of organization of the little, of the little band is really interesting. And, and because it's all conveyed, like, um, most of the time we're focalized through Loon, not exclusively. Um, there is like a section in here where the camp cat um, gets uh, gets uh, their perspective. And there's a fantastic section from the Wolverine's perspective, uh, which is really just like amazing and beautiful. And we occasionally get a, a kind of um, a narrative intervention from the third wind Um who tells us something and then and then lifts lifts Loon up, keeps pushing him along, um, but mostly we're pretty like closely focalized through Loon, and that and and um, we're, we learn. So rather than like if you know like if you're reading like a science fiction novel where like an explorer comes to a new planet like because that person is also foreign to the place, like they, ex they explain it to you, the reader in certain kinds of ways. Um, but when you're reading a science fiction novel like this one, where the person you're focalized through knows the place deeply, you learn it rather than through their estrangement from it, you learn it through from their familiarity and your estrangement. So they're kind of pushing back on your own assumptions about things, which I think is very, is powerful there because like, we are looking at, you know, we really are looking here at a form of human organization um, that is radically different from our own, and yet is in a, just like to, you know, echo what you were saying, not in a romantic way, um, or in a capital H humanist way, is deeply human. Um, right. So we're like seeing like certain kinds of human possibilities played out here. Um, and the places where you realize, you know, your assumption that like, um, there must be a political organization, right? Even to any, even the smallest society must have a political organization. But I think it seems really right to me that pretty clearly, like they they don't. In that, um, there are certain kinds of powers that people have, right? So Thorn the Shaman does have the power to heal, and in a different register, so does Heather. And actually, mm -hmm. as we see later on in the book, like they col they collaborate. Um, mm -hmm. In, in their healing, right? And so that is a kind of power, but that's not political power. Like there is no sovereign here. And this is, I was saying to you before we started recording that I've been reading um, Society Against the State by Pierre Clastra. Um, I don't know how to say his name, uh, who is like a French, I guess, anthropologist. And the book is from the seventies, like 
around the same time as Sol Marshall Solons wrote Stone Age Economics. Um, uh, and one of the things that he argues about hunter-gatherer societies is that they don't have political organization. And if there's a headman, the headman's role is not like a kind of quasi or like small scale sovereignty or to accrue power. Um, the headman's role is to do certain kinds of things, including uh, including like distribution, like the distribution of, of goods as necessary or sometimes the giving of, of gifts. Um, and that, uh, that to me really resonates with the picture that we get here where like, um, you know, everything seems to be like deeply collaborative. Schist's role like maybe matters to some extent, but obviously like the way in which the work gets done is really much more collaboratively um, and, and not because he's like assigning people tasks, right? It's interesting because, and this plays out much later in the book too, but you know, sh people become, members of the tribe become, a lot less satisfied with Schist's leadership or non-leadership, his his head his quasi headman status. I mean, there's a point where he, where Loon says like some tribes have a headman, some don't. We sort of do, but not really. Um, but but his but Schist's position is one that's much more less about leadership and um, wielding power than about like responsibility. Yeah. Like he is responsible for, he has taken it upon himself, especially to be responsible for certain things that redound to the benefit of the entire group. And once he starts screwing that up in various ways, um, you know, you get scenes of different members of the tribe kind of exchanging glances and being like, you know, we have a problem here and that, that it's going to need to be resolved one way or another and there are better ways to resolve it than others. But it's much more of a collective problem. Um, and maybe because of like the size of the group, only like whatever, two score and two or, or, or however many it is, it's much more easy to um, use like um, non-political differences in, in that way to remove this person from his position of responsibility or to exercise some other form of like, um, I guess, discipline. Um, uh, but for the benefit of the entire group rather than to like prop up any kind of like preconceived um, state organization or political um, form. Right. And there, and there, that's whole, later in the book though. Like yeah. Yeah. Later. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, you know, their whole year we get even just from these first two sections, how much the whole year of the group is organized around um uh, doing what needs to be done to um, be provided sufficiently for in each season of the year and winter. And when we meet, when we meet them, it's the end of winter appropriately enough. Right. I mean, uh, thorns wander comes at the very end of winter. The first, the wolves at home chapter, we see, we see them as like, you know, the basically like the larder is, is getting down is pretty bare. Right. And people are really waiting for the breakup of the ice and the return of the ducks. Um, uh, but like that they have these periods of scarcity over the course of the year in winter is like part of the year, right? It's not that like they live in these this desperate like hand to mouth way. It's that like part of how the year goes for them is like, you know, when there is an abundance of food and you're not gonna be able to store food for a super, only certain kinds of food can you store for a long time. So when there's an abundance like, 
you eat, you know, you do all the work that needs to be done to like catch as many caribou or whatever it is, as you need to, um, you eat, you put on the layers of fat and you know that the winter months are the hungry months. And that's so that, so this is just sort of return to the way in which like, you know, um, ideas about like so-called primitive society as societies of scarcity, right? And as you were saying before, as like poor, <laughs> right? right? Which, you know, is a, is a, like a way of describing, uh, describing the world that comes to us, um, you know, in good part from the 18th century and from the political economists writing in the 18th century who decide that like, you know, human life across the globe can be understood to like exist in fundamentally different time spaces so that so-called primitive people live in the past, right? And, you know, like white European people live in the present. Um, and so that like poor, uh, poor white European people are essentially primitive. <laughs> primitive, right? And, and, and that so-called primitive people are essentially poor. And like that sort of like descriptor, which also says that like hunter-gatherer society must be a place of scarcity and struggle, like, um, which is precisely, this is that Marshall Sands book, um, Stone Age Economics, like is precisely an argument against imposing the categories of bourgeois economics onto how we think about um, either early human society um, or other kinds of hunter-gatherer societies. Um, but, you know, like this book is sort of precisely about like giving us the kind of counter to that in which we have mm -hmm. to like re-understand what we think. We're looking at a world in which there is no such thing as poverty. There is isolation. There is the possibility of being like cast out from your group and becoming a woodsman and just like having to kind of wander and take care of yourself. And that obviously like sucks. <laughs> Um, although we meet some interesting woodsmen um, well, as we along too, right? And it has a deep appeal to Loon um, yeah. as like this adolescent kid who's just coming into his own and is dissatisfied with his like uh, what what feels to him a, a kind of prescribed role as 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 the shaman. Like he doesn't want to be the shaman, except he really loves painting. Like I love that idea of like I don't want to do this, but I love art so much that I, I I'm compelled to do it. Um, but that there is this kind of like still this kind of, yeah, there's this, it, it's an unambiguous, it's not a, it's, it's an ambiguous or an ambivalent um, feeling toward like that, that sense of independence that these woodsmen have, right? who you, you know, there's a, there's a call to be that way, but also um, it's a really hard life, right? I was going to say like, it's in everything that you're saying, it's a very, um, it, it reminds me negatively of um, Robinson Crusoe. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I mean, it's a, definitely an antidote to Robinson Crusoe. And I don't want to, um, I'm just going to cut to the end of the section that we're reading um, on page 128 and 29, the end of section two, where Loon describes his kit, his clothes, basically. So after he's already done his wander and they're all like getting ready to go to the 8-8 festival, which is this like um, jamboree, basically a big meeting. <laughs> of, <laughs> meeting it's, it's basically Burning Man. <laughs> It's Burning Man. Uh, There's an amazing like um, uh, description of what we're talking about here in terms of like this, um, our, no, our notion of early man as being impoverished or poor versus this picture of incredible, not only abundance, but like luxury almost. I mean, I, uh, Heather has a saying that says, luxury is uh, stupid enough is as good as a feast. We're familiar with yeah, that very much. Good thing. <laughs> um, but um, 
but here we have this description of Loon's whole kind of setup, which is enviable, I would say. Um, Loon's clothes were made and were well made and clean. Loon had stitched them, but for the most part, Heather had cut the parts and she had her own style. Loon liked the way his clothes felt and looked. And when compared to the makeshift equipment of his wander, he felt superbly comfortable and well-dressed. He wore a woven reed cap that had a good sun brim and a strap to tie it under his chin in a wind. He had made it himself and would wear it until his abuse wrecked it, after which he would weave another one. On his back, just make another one. On his back, outside everything else, he wore a woven reed cape, which took, which took such a beating from water and sun that he needed a new one every summer. He folded it and stuffed it in his sack when he did not need it, and that too was hard on it. Under that, he wore a parka made of caribou hide with ruffs of marten and marmot fur around the hood and bottom and sleeve ends. His middle was covered by a skirt of deer hide turned inward with a crotch piece of rabbit fur cradling his pizzle when it was cold. <laughs> he had chaps of caribou hide, but kept in his pack except during the bitterest cold or the thorniest breaks. He liked his legs free as much as possible. He often went barefoot, but his shoes worn on rough ground or during long walks were some of Heather's best with bearskin bottoms and deerskin uppers, big enough to take a layer of fine straw stuffed in the tops when he wanted that warmth. Over his arms were the hide straps of his back sack, and in his sack were his fire kit, some duff and punk and fungus tinder, an ember bowl, and some bearskin butt pads. In the fold of, the, of his waist belt were flint and antler points and needles, a burin, some blades, a tassel of leather strings looped on a bone ring, a blade retoucher, and some assorted lucky pebbles and teeth, including his deer's teeth. These things were really all one needed, along with a javelin and spear thrower. One could become a traveler with just them. They took all that away from a boy going out on his wander, supposedly to make him prove he could get by on his own. But now it occurred to Loon that if the boys were allowed to leave with their things, a lot of them might never come back. Um, and that's just like the, uh, that, that also reminds me of that scene in Aurora where the, there's that society of people who like prevent their kids from knowing that they're on a spaceship until they like take them out into space. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, that's just an incredible like picture of this kind of, you know, and I love the punchline of that is like, that's really all one needed. It's like so much stuff, so yeah. much stuff. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I so, so yeah, I mean, you can 100% hear the like, um, uh, you know, a little bit of like the Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer packs his backpack, you know, I mean, the like, um, the lucky pebbles and teeth, including deer's teeth. There's a great moment earlier when we learned that like young men like to make necklaces with teeth on them, but then they usually give them up because inevitably they stab themselves with them, <laughs> uh, which is fantastic. But I, I love also, yeah, it's not only that it's like um, this kind of abundance and that all of this is stuff that like, not only in some cases has been collaboratively made, but involves knowledge that people are passing around to each other. And one of the things that I feel like we just see over and over again in this book is just like small ways in which somebody figures out a better way to do something, you know, either on their own, either under some exigency, but often just like from like the kind of repetition. So like, um, and there are these little touches of like, um, you know, the artistic and the individual in all of these kind of shared collaborative things, right? Like the way in which Heather makes things, you know, and she, you know, and she even like 
will she makes um, porcupine hide uh, boots for Thorn as a as a extremely mean and hilarious joke, right? So there's this kind of like it's not just like making stuff. There is also like this deep kind of like craft to it that like, you know, making things well. Um, and, and you know, a sense of like, ex of expressiveness too. So even though like the cave painting, which we'll, we'll end up talking about later since we see that later. Although in this section, we do see them making paint and like the process of making oil-based paint for the different kinds of oil-based paint and not just paint, but also oil sticks. Um, is like crayon, crayons and like kind of almost like chalk and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like amazing. So, so cool. And of course this is like the kind of thing that I feel like, um, you know, I just think that like, you know, Stan does incredibly well is to like give you like a process and have it and show you a process and have it just be like, this is so fascinating to realize that this is how this is done. Like, um, the same place where you learn about like making oil-based paint, we also learn about making glue. It just like, it's incredibly cool. But, you know, like uh, it's not only the abundance in like the things and the warm layers, and it's also the abundance of things being well-made and um, and cared for and shared and adapted and made like better. You know, all of this is a picture of like, just like this real, a very rich, world and and absolutely it would be like foolish to think that this is like a pre-cultural world because they don't have say writing um for example i yeah i mean all yeah it, it the contrasts between sort of this and you know what we understand modernity to be and how we live and what what we're told um the benefits of modernity and civilization are are so fascinating because there's a way in which um, I think that the, again, the common sense version of this, of early man is that uh, just a life of chaos, <laughs> a life of just like hand to mouth um, and uh, not knowing what, you know, how would you know what the future holds or whatever. And rather we have a kind of, you know, I, it, there's a dialectic, I guess, between stability and, and um, newness, novelty, yeah. right? Um, and that we're told that uh, modernity gives us all these new ways of uh, this novelty, this new this new way of seeing the world, um, and there, there's a great deal of stability here. Of course, capitalism is all about destabilizing everything all the time, constantly, and destroying creative de or destructive creation or whatever. Um, and and paradoxically, um, the culture that we get out of capitalism is like stultifyingly the same over and over again, like just surface novelties rather than anything actually new or real. And here in this society, there's actually incredible stability, but also the room for uh, improvisation and newness as well. So like passing on knowledge is not just like passing on the exact same thing as like you actually discover new things and add to the storehouse of knowledge. Um, when when uh, Thorne is teaching um, Loon these poems and these songs, you know, it's not a direct rote memorization exercise as much as Thorne wants it to be and puts pressure on, Th on Loon to do it. Loon may try to memorize these things, but he can't. And part of the reason he can't is because he doesn't see the world the way that Thorne sees it. So that like the changes that he inputs into these songs, the improvisations 
come both from a resistance, an active resistance to thorn, and then also a kind of like passive, like just not seeing the world that way and therefore creating the world anew um, via this, this kind of like these song forms, right? So on page 123 to 124, we have a great example of that that I won't go into, which is that I won't read, but which is the the, the story of the flood. Yeah. Where where Thorne is like, well, then the shaman, you know, took his rod and he threw it into the ocean. And then like eventually like the and then, and then the the seas recede, receded or whatever. And Loon is like, well, yeah, but that would have happened anyway. Like yeah. that was just a coincidence. <laughs> Uh, and Thorne is like, oh, angry at him, like shaking his fist. Um, so that anyway, like there's this kind of like capacity for newness in this old moment, this ancient moment that I think that we're, you know, conditioned to kind of not recognize as a possibility maybe. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to read, um, I feel like we should talk a little bit about um, about Loon. Um, who really is like very nicely specified as a as a character. And I mean, I think that observation you're just making about like the contest between him and Thorne and his feeling that he's, he also doesn't think he's good at memorizing. He thinks he can't do it. He's too dumb for it. Um, but, but I think you're right. It is much more about like kind of differences between them and the way in which like new, new things, right. New things come into being. And, um, but before we lost the, um, the thread of thinking about like um, uh, making things and how like um, the material, the material world, the world, the world of stuff made by people is so different here. There's a passage on um, 96 that I just really loved. It makes me think of like, um, uh, you know, like what, what would it be like if we could like uh, to um, perceive the world of um our kind of um all of our made culture the uh outside of like the value form or outside of like the commodity form so thorn uh thorn is once again trying to get um loon to like recite something and once again loon is like kind of you know ah, refusing to do it uh thorn gave up this is the top of 96 thorn gave up and went back to talking to himself Ah, uh, see how this shirt I'm wearing is something I made the year before last. It was in the ninth month and we were back home and I was sitting right in this very spot. So I can know an action from the past. And here it is now. And when I come back here next summer, the shirt will be here again. So now is now. But in this now, there is some mix of the past and future right there inside things and blowing around in our thoughts. Everything keeps rolling around because there will be a now next year at this same day of the year. 19th day of the fifth month. We know that. So every day is the birthday of all the days in the years to come that are this day, um, which I just think is like a marvelous passage in so many ways, but it like, you know, it reads like a kind of like, um, uh, um, so if like, you know, part of how it is that value is produced under capital is that like, um, you know, in the process of production, past labor can be reawakened by new labor, right? This is part of how like, 
yeah, uh, part of how you get value, part of how capital produces value is that like the capitalist doesn't have to pay again for the labor that made the machinery. They're only paying for the labor that like goes into like the people who are using the machinery on the line, right? But that old labor, that dead labor is still in there. Um, but all of that is of course under capital and folded into like the regime of the working day, um, divided up by hours, labor abstracted and paid because it is measurable, right? And here, like, you know, uh, Thorne explicitly invokes the idea that you're like the old labor, what you, you ma I made this shirt. And so like that time when I made it is still hanging around inside the shirt. It's not just a reminder of it. Um, it's also a reminder, but it's not just a reminder. It's still there and it'll be here next year. And this is a way that we can think about how time works and the way in which like the past can be present to us, but how also we can start like imagining like the unfolding of time into next year and that this day will be the birthday of all of the days that come. I mean, like, you know, the sort of like the radiance of the part that the shirt plays there, um, hold it like holding so much, right? And holding a world in which like um, making and the maker and the object made and the and um, why the use value of that object and the way in which that object helps you mark a sort of like relation to a larger world. None of that is separate. There's no right. There's no alienation here. This is like the like the picture of like living in relation to a world without alienation. Um, and it's just like, uh, you know, it's beautiful. It's a really beautiful passage. Yeah. And then it goes right into a kind of like um, Hegelian like explanation of like you-ness or like mm -hmm. subjectivity. Like um, Loon says, I don't understand you. Thorne says, of course you understand me because I'm talking to the you in, to the you in you that is the birthday of the you's that will follow. Like, uh, so if you understand me, then you understand me now by then I'll be hit. I'll be dead. And just a white point in the night sky. I'll wolf your heels, boy, like fools, the wolf wolf's the fire starter. So I'm going to be the fire starter. I thought fire starter was a fire starter. I'm not talking to the you that is here right now. You are too insolent. <laughs> It's so good. And then also like a funny premonition of the way in which like ghosts, um, ghosts and haunting like come to matter like later in the novel, right? Like yeah. just like the, um, you know, again, like the sort of like um, the spiritual and the material are just simply not separate here, you know, like they can give over, they can give over to each other um, uh you know, in these like really kind of marvelous ways. And also like Thorne, you know, clearly like Thorne is the artist, but also like he is the philosopher too, or at least at the level of like, he really enjoy he enjoys the the philosophical riff. And, you know, Loon is just going to repeatedly be like, show me again how to make the paint. <laughs> right. Well, he's, you know, Loon's only 12. He doesn't appreciate uh, just the bullshittery of no, philosophy. No, And I do think that the like, you know, um, I think that, I mean, you know, like the way that we've been talking about this, which seems, it feels really right to me is that this is a book about like a collective world. Um, but it does matter that Loon is not only like, you know, a 12 year old in this kind of like weird position of like being a child and a man at the same time and trying to figure out like what the lines are between those things or what kind of freedom he wants to have. But he's also an orphan um, you know, his parents come back to him in dreams. He try, he sees his father and like travels with his father um, while he's on his wander. 
Um, and we know that he lived for a while, just like as a little tiny thing in the forest and Heather had to like coax him out of the forest uh, to come and live with her. And so oddly he's in the position of not just being Thorne's apprentice, but of being like kind of the adopted child in a world that doesn't seem to have like um, uh, a sort of like super rigid version of like familial relations. Nonetheless, he's like in the position of being sort of the adoptive child of the shaman and the herb woman. For, so for him, like the, the stakes of being able to like um, figure things out in the world are very high. Yeah, so, and that puts Loon in a kind of interesting spot with relation to, um, in relation to the the tribe as a whole, because, well, for one thing, as like a future shaman, he's not supposed to like take a wife or something like that. So there's still the kind of notion of like monogamy, some something like that here, which um, is interesting. But, um, but then also like, because he's gonna be the shaman, um, and because he had to go on this on this wander where he hurts himself, we have to talk about like the the ankle injury that he sustains <laughs> that like haunts him throughout the book. Um, he can't really go out hunting with his friends as much as he used to. So there's immediately like just within the kind of like so like not only is he going to be the shaman and like a kind of possessor of this knowledge that is just kind of important for the tribe to have. Um, but which is also not like necessarily secret. It's just something that um, I guess it is kind of secret because kind of secret, yeah. Thorne says at various times, like that's shaman stuff. You tell me that later, you know? And we learn right on, on page 10, there's a thing about, um, uh, oh yeah. Um, I think this is before he can get the, um, uh, uh, his fire lit when he's on just like right at the beginning of his wander. Um, he's cursing Thorn. Um, and then also from time to time, he would shout things out loud. It's cold. Thorn would sometimes howl his thoughts that way, using old words from the shaman's language, words that sounded like the things themselves. Eshvar kalt, Eshvar kalti. Um, so, uh, so, the, so there's some... It, it kind of seems like shamanic knowledge is like, um, it has an esoteric dimension, but it's not necessarily actually esoteric um, knowledge, but the shamans like have some desire to uh, keep it secret, yeah. give it its give it its secret aura. Right. Yeah. I mean, it gives them a kind of, you know, status within the group, but um but it also, yeah, sets it, it it sets up Loon for being set apart from the group uh, as a kind of specific, um, you know, holder of specific knowledge, or um, you know, um, as a as a designated, you know, as the shaman, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it already kind of like isolates him from the group, and which is all, which is interesting too, because it has that kind of it's the it's the flip side of his desire to go and just be a wanderer. Like, like, oh, I, he, he repeatedly in that first chapter, he thinks about the people in his tribe and how he knows all of them so well, and it's boring and he hates them because he <laughs> knows them so well. And like, maybe I could just go out and light out to, for the territory on my own. Um, but then, um, you know, that's, that's obviously a hard life, but then being a shaman is the flip side of that because you're, you're alone with, with people then. Um, which I guess is something that he kind of 
I don't know. I mean, I guess he comes to accept it, um, if not enjoy it, right? Um, yeah. But that's just his kind of fate. Yeah, I mean, and we have the, you know, like, Thorne's ears are all fucked up because because uh, his shaman, this, like, you know, seems like famous, overwhelming shaman, uh, re- like, just, like, tortured his apprentices, it seems like. Um, so, you know, and it's clear that although, like, uh, Thorne Thorn will, like, uh, physically punish Loon by, like, grabbing his ear and that kind of thing. Like, he doesn't abuse him in that same kind of way. So we have the, also, this, this is another place where that thing that you were saying earlier about, like, new stuff is emerging. Like, we can also see that, like, this relationship itself, like, what kind of relationship this is, like, how much it's about, like, you know, uh, kind of like domineering demand that, that, you know, you must learn exactly what I say versus how much is a relationship of, of like care of some kind, like clearly the relationship, even though Loon doesn't particularly think that this is the case, it seems to be pretty clear that Thorne's relationship to Loon is very different than his relationship was to his, to his shaman. Um, and for all of his, like, you know, for all of what, like, Loon feels like is his, like, short-tempered, like, stubborn un- unwillingness to let Loon just do what he wants to do, it seems like Thorne also is, like, really trying to, like, teach this person in a di- in a somewhat different way than he was taught, at the same time without wanting to lose, like, what he takes to be, like, the old, the, no- the knowledge that's really important or that really matters. Um, um, yeah, I was going to say, um, in relation to that, I guess the, there's a lot of sayings too, like Heather has a lot of sayings, especially, but that, um, that are peppered throughout the first, especially the first chapter. I mean, I imagine they're peppered throughout the whole book, but, but I especially noticed them in the first chapter where, you know, he's, he's met with a kind of, um, bird or obstacle and then he can draw on this kind of like um group knowledge this this folk knowledge essentially that's that's passed down in like pithy sayings or whatever so um you can only kill disappointment with a new try is one of them enough is as good as a feast is another one i wrote some down um no one else can live your life for you these are things that uh what hurts you has to be forgotten um these are like things that are like still pretty like like we're speaking about like the humanist aspect of the book like these are all very like um things that are worth <laughs> bearing in mind we're, we're as well. bearing <laughs> like they, they they there's a, there is still this kind of universalism of the human experience despite the fact that this is like set 30,000 years ago um uh which is um which is very cool. Like one of the ones that I really like that I think we don't do anymore is um, Thorne always insists that you name your hurts. Mm-hmm. So when, when, um, when Loon w- hurts his ankle and his, and his, and it cuts his toe open as he's running from the old ones from some Neanderthals, um, he, he has to name his like sort of broken ankle, perhaps broken or at least severely sprained ankle um, crouch <laughs> and his uh, his cut toe is called spit. Um, and that way you can like, by doing that, he imb- imbues them with a kind of personhood that then they're able to talk to him and he's able to like talk back to them or ignore them. Um, 
but that in a certain way, it, it allows him to sort of categorize them and recognize them as things that are just going like familiars essentially like things that will be with him um, regardless for the foreseeable future and therefore like deal with them in a in a in a kind of um more direct way rather than ignoring them like um internalizing them as as kind of bearing a direct um influence over like what he's able to do and what he what he then has to do to continue surviving that's i yeah i was also thinking it's a really interesting like um on the one hand, there's some interesting kind of things about like uh, sort of bodily experiences that feel very alien to our own, um, but but that we can kind of imagine. Like right when he starts out on the wander and he's cold, he does a thing to like try to heat himself up. And he has to do this like a lot, um, which is really reminiscent, I feel like, of certain kinds of like bodily practices that we saw like in years of rice and salt or like the running that... Um, Nergal does on Mars, right? The like, uh, the kind of like get it, getting into sort of like this rhythm, this almost like kind of spiritual rhythm, right? Um, that lets your like your your body just keep going and going and going, right? That the kind of like self heating that that uh, Loon does, I think it's a little like that, and that relationship too. Like, I mean, when he cuts, when he hurts himself, um, and and yeah, he's obviously like hurt his the ankle truly badly because it continues um even though he he does like an incredible amount of stuff on that leg like he continues to need to use some form of of crutch uh consistently throughout the throughout the novel um but when his toe is bleeding his main which is probably like a pretty bad cut, but his main worry is he doesn't want to leave a blood trail because the old ones are right behind him. And so he licks it um, and like the, you know, he, he expresses that the spittle is to get the clotting going, right? So that he's not going to be leaving as much blood behind. Um, and that is such a like, um, you know, the sort of picture of the picture of like having the kind of body where both one of the things that you do is to say like, um, uh, I'm going to name my hurts and that's a way to sort of like contain them. And it also gives them their, as you were saying, like their own presence, their own like kind of life. Um, but also like I am, I am intimate enough with my body that I not only know that like my own spit will help to slow down the bleeding in my toe that I'm just going to like bend over and like lick my toe in order to make right. In order to get that started, like, um, you know, and that the and that these are things like he has to tell himself because he is hurt and he is really frightened and he has to kind of like remind himself about naming your hurts, right? He needs like that motto, that idea, right? Um, but also like just like the suggestion here is of like a very different way of like living in one's body than we experience, you know, or that we might experience it under certain moments of like extremity or stress or like in a in a survival situation, but like th this is just stuff that's like present to him, you know? Um, and even though the ankle bothers him enormously and, and also just like frustrates him really deeply, um, like he, he has a relationship to that hurt part of the body that become, that becomes a disability. It's an ongoing, like kind of ranging from just like low level debility to really full, full on disability. 
Um, but he like lives with that in a way because like he has a, you know, there's a story about how that both is and is not part of his body um, that allows him to kind of like process it and care for himself in the ways that he needs to. You know, uh, one, one thing I wanted to say in relation to what you were saying, um, where you kind of ended up was that in terms of the, the wounds that he has, by naming them, he has a story to tell about them. And like stories are super, super, super important in this um, book. And um, one of the things that he, very early on in his wander, he's like, he couldn't start a fire the first night. And he says, oh man, when I tell them this part of the story, they're really going to make fun of me. Um, and that's, that's no good. So like never does it enter his mind to lie about it, yeah, right? Yeah. Like the fidelity to story and the fidelity of story to reality is something that is super important to Loon and his people that um, you don't make up stories that are lies just to make yourself look better. Like this is just like the story is what happened and there's value in it regardless of how it makes you look because it's the true story of your, of your life, I guess, or like, or as true as you, as you can make it as complete as you can make it. And that this is not only just a form, it's not a form, not only of entertainment mm -hmm. or a, 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 a form of passing time, but it's a story. It's a, the stories are like forms of intimacy and relation mm -hmm. and like, and finding out because when he comes back, when he does come back and he starts telling the story, the other men, they kind of laugh. Uh, the other people in the tribe, they kind of laugh. They maybe poke fun of him at him, but they also say, I hate it when that happens. Yeah. 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 You know, so there's an, it's not about like, uh, it's not about hiding something that he was incapable of doing because he's scared of being humiliated. It's about telling the truth and therefore, um, coming into greater community with the people in your life. And that's something that is <laughs> obviously in short supply um, in our day and age in modernity, right? With this, with, you know, with just our alienation from ourselves, which is only accentuated by lying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really like, um, uh, I think that's a really beautiful way to put it. And it also, it fits so well with what we see about um, the poems slash stories that Thorn um, that 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 Thorn in his role as the shaman tells, which are not just like I mean, you know, the same stories get told over and over again, and people await those stories. Um, and clearly, part of the pleasure in them is that you can tell them you can tell them better or worse. Um, and part of the pleasure in them is, you know, like that they are exciting or funny or whatever it is. Um, but they also are like the storytelling um, is not like um, I'm trying to think of what the right way to put this is. It's not like something additional, like on top of things. It's not like a bonus or like. Uh, you know, this is a leisure activity or, um, you know, an escape or something. It's like fully and completely like part and parcel of the world. And it makes the world too. Like, so really like when, when they're down by the river waiting for the ice to break up, um, uh, and, and Thorn like does the, here's the ice breaking up poem, like, there is no separation between it doesn't it's not a question of like they like 
you know, everybody just like believes that because Thorne says these words, the ice breaks up. That's not what it is. And it's also not that everybody's just like, the ice is just going to break up and Thorne's going to say these words. It's like those two things are, are part, are absolutely part of the whole, right? You know, like everybody is immersed in the occasion. Um, and like the ice breaking up, which is a thing that happens every year and is obviously to be celebrated because it indicates, um, on the one hand, it's to be celebrated because it indicates like the coming of spring. On the other hand, it's incredibly dangerous because it can produce unaccountable floods um, and they can like, you know, everybody packs all of their stuff up just in case, um, you know, um, but despite the fact that that's an event that happens every year and it portends both like change and like actually like the emergence of a time when they have to work really, really hard because it like is the beginning of like, uh, you know, hunting season. Um, that is also like this spectacular, you know, like moment of like communal togetherness and they cheer absolutely at it happening. Um, you know, so it's like, there's a, this kind of, um, uh, you know, just as like, you wouldn't lie because the story is about being part of something. I mean, that's why you come back and you have a story, you have a story, right. not, you know, a little bit to be like, hey guys, uh, you know, um, I escaped from two old ones and also two lions. Um, but, but also to say like, I'm part of you and here's my experience, uh, you know, and similarly, even with like the shamanic rituals, like it's everybody's experience. And part of that, you know, there just is not this like separation between, uh, you know, there's no separating out into domains like uh, work and leisure or like, uh, you know, production, distribution and like the cultural superstructure, right? It's all, it's like all one thing all together. I think the closest we get to that is when Loon is being forced to make paint by Thorne and he, but then, you know, the flip side of that is he loves to paint. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> you, you know, they, they are part of the same process. But then there's that moment, th that, that moment of the river breaking up and um, Thorne recites the poem and then he has Loon recite the poem and Loon recites it slightly differently in part like because he doesn't memorize it perfectly and in part because he sees it differently than Thorne does. Um, but then Loon has this idea too. Uh, it says um, on 124 to 25, Thorne had raised a fist during Loon's changes to indicate his displeasure, but the gorge was now cracking and roaring under them very loudly, sounding very much like the cracks and rumblings of thunder overhead. Thorne hoped that one day that would happen, that the breakup would come in the midst of a giant thunderstorm, and he had an idea for a poem that hopefully would be ready to tell if it ever did happen. Which I find is really fascinating, like little moment where he's got this idea for like, this art project essentially yeah, yeah. <laughs> that if everything, you know, works out the right way, he can, he can do a really cool poem under the right circumstances. And, and that's fascinating because it's not about imposing your will to create a specific effect, but it's about working with the kind of um, contingent and chance possibilities mm, that mm -hmm. nature might provide you and being ready for them essentially yeah um so it's it's kind of a fascinating like picture of thinking of like like future projection in a way um but that's not necessarily about um 
bringing nature under your will or colonizing it or yeah, yeah. Um, reducing it to a utilitarian value. Mm-hmm. It's about making something new, making something special, creating a memory um, and and a kind of, yeah, enhancing the beauty of an already beautiful and significant yearly moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. And I feel like that, like, um, you know, foreshadows really well some of the things that Loon does with his painting when he gets to start painting too. And that also was just making me think like, um, you know, it's, it's, I think a, a really like compelling thing that this book does is like, this is the ice age. And although here we are, like spring is on the way, um, you know, um, uh, it's not actually going to get very warm. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and of course later in the book, well, we, there are, um, there is a whole lengthy sequence much farther, much farther north, where it is much, much colder when we think about ice in a different way. But um, something I think is really interesting here is that, like, again, just like we were talking about with scarcity before, like, this is also not a picture in which, like, um, uh, I don't know, it'd be very easy to be like, wow, living in the Ice Age, that sucks. You're just cold all the time, you know. Um, but like that, uh, that idea like suggests like a completely different relationship to the natural world than the one that, that these people have. Right. Which is, which is not one in which they're like, I mean, they're excited when it it can be warmer. Right. And they do things to help themselves be warmer when it's cold. But like, this is, you know, like we could easily have the Ice Age represented, I think as like, you know, um, wow, it would have been really terrible to have to like live through that. And instead, like we see that this relationship to climate um, uh, is really not a relationship to climate because like these are not people who take themselves to be, these are not people who take it to be the case that like what it is to be a person is simply to be able to be comfortable anywhere, right? (laughs) You know, that that you are the living thing that has no ecological niche, right? That you can just like go wherever you want to go and like you're always going to feel good and the AC will kick in if it gets too hot or whatever. Like, you know, instead like there just isn't that sort of separation between them. They are like environmental creatures. Like, you know, they live in this place deeply. Yeah. Right? I mean, and they think about it. It's not that they don't think about it. It's not that they're like well, and aware, right? They're very aware. They have a profoundly deep knowledge of their bodies and how warm their bodies need to be to be safe and how cold the the, the lower threshold is. It's like, he's dancing around. He's like, I can't feel my feet, but that's normal. I can never feel my feet anyway. It's fucking cold here, you know? Um, but it's not even put in the, in the context of being cold. It's just like, I don't, you know, if you can't feel your feet, that's fine to a certain extent, you know? Um, because I know that my warmth is in my, or my, the center of my body is warm and I can actually work to like radiate that heat out in a way that, uh, makes me not comfortable, but not in a panic or something like that. But I love the way that you put that, like to be human is just to not be uncomfortable ever. Yeah. (laughs) Something, which is, you know, being from Southern California, uh, that's a huge rude awakening when you move anywhere else in the world. (laughs) Because I mean, my dad, who is a native Southern Californian and has really never lived anywhere beyond that is still mesmerized by the fact that like, there are like 12 foot high piles of snow in the parking lot at Walmart uh, here in Maine. <laughs> like, 
you know, I was, I was actually driving around town um, a couple of weeks ago and seeing these like giant mounds of snow and thinking about what my dad would say about them. And it's like, Oh, they just leave them there. Like they just plow it up and just leave it there. huh? <laughs> and then knowing that he would like put two and two together and be like, well, I guess what else would you do with it? Like, there's nothing, you know, it's not going to melt. So what else were you going to do with it? Um, uh, and just like, what do you do all winter long when it's so cold? Do you just stay inside all the time? And I'm like, yeah, you do. It's fucking cold outside. <laughs> Um, and certainly like, uh, I'm I, the least pleasant part of reading this novel was just the fact that I'm reading it in the dead of winter in yeah, Rome, yeah, and it's never going to end. And I'm just desperate to, I'm like losing my mind. You need, but, you need to get out there and, uh, uh, do some recitations. Well, that's, that is the thing is like not recitations, but leaving the house <laughs> and actually taking a walk, you know you warm up. It's yeah. not like you're cold and miserable all the time. So, yes. um, and, and like, you know, kn knowing, knowing, you know, what your limits are and knowing how, how the cold works and how you can work within the cold is, um, is something that like they take for, they essentially like take for granted because that is just their, their lives. They don't have, as you say, air conditioning. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But they do have the knowledge of how to start a fire, like in any in any right. circumstance. Right. right. Uh, you know, uh, my dad was from uh, Northern Ontario, and he used to he had no no tolerance with us thinking that it was cold in Chicago, and he used to say that the place he was from it was snowing nine months of the year and melting the other three. <laughs> but he yeah. would be, like he would not. There was just like no. Uh, you know, when it was very cold, if there wasn't school, like we always were having to like go ice skating, like in, you know, like the 90 mile per hour Chicago wind, or whatever. And he really like, he never gave up on the idea that like, we were like very foolish to think that this was a cold climate. Um, you know, I, I, um, <laughs> the last two days it's back to thirties right now here, but like the last two days it was in the fifties. And I was really like, how do I dress for this? But it, and it was so warm outside that I was like, I could literally wear a t-shirt and shorts right now, be one of these crazy people that I've seen living in Chicago who wear shorts <laughs> yeah. when it's like in the thirties. <laughs> because like coming from California, like I can still remember, it's still in, I've lived there, I've lived outside of California for nearly 20 years now, but it's still in my DNA that it's like, you're insane if you're wearing short pants in like 50 degree weather. But I'm now at a point where I'm like, I could conceivably do it. It wouldn't be comfortable and I wouldn't want to be outdoors for that long. But like yeah, you the contrast between twenties and like 55 degree weather is so incredible right now for me that I'm almost in that, like I've almost fully decalifornian sized myself, which is, an odd thought to have. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually it happens. Um, uh, I was just, I was actually just thinking today about how um, a weird sort of like pandemic thing is it's been actually quite nice in Chicago. Like we've had several days in the sixties and sunny and um, you know, definitely like can be out in shirt sleeves weather. Um, but it feels weird, I think, because something about like wearing layers all winter long feels like it suits the pandemic. Like, you know, my protect, 
I would go outside without protective layer. I mean, obviously I'm wearing a face mask, but without like, right. you know, like this sort of like bundled up multiple layers. Um, I don't know. The, the exposure feels like very weird, you know, like I can't imagine like having my shoulders exposed because that seems like uh, risky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I went for a walk yesterday and just because it was nicer outside, there were more people walking around outside, which is, because of, as a result of pandemic, I'm just terrified of people. Like, I don't want to ever yeah. <laughs> pass them. I mean, some are wearing masks, some aren't. You feel like if you're wearing a mask and you pass someone who isn't, they're going to like do violence to you because part of the deep state uh, apparatus, uh, you're a brainwashed yeah, exactly. Q zombie or some <laughs> shit. I don't know. Um, my partner heard at the grocery store the other day, um, someone in line behind her saying, we didn't have to do all this stuff when there was Ebola and swine flu, which is a talking point from a year ago. And this person is after more people, more Americans have died than in World War II. This person is still saying this oh. Tucker Carlson bullshit. Oh. terrifying it's insane it's completely crazy and i just fear that like with spring coming people are going to like lose all um propriety about mask wearing and social distancing and stuff i i mean when our you know terrible mayor announced um that like you know the baseball teams will get to have opening day so wrigley and uh sock park whatever it's called now declining fortunes field yeah like uh insure bad insurance company <laughs> it's called line goes down park um yeah. uh but you know like i i also have that feeling of or you know like this just like joe biden being like we'll be able to be together by the fourth of july mm -hmm. oh interesting date uh like all of that <laughs> makes me feel like you know uh, this kind of fear of like, again, just like wanting to leap over, right? Just like leap across like all of this other stuff that has to happen before. And just like put us right back into like the quagmire of the whole, the whole thing. I mean, there are other things to say about the Joe Biden thing that made me like extremely angry, but like, and also the fucking opening Wrigley Field, like, but you Wrigley know- Field should be made into a museum. No one should ever- go to see a baseball <laughs> game there ever again, because the fans there are some of the worst people in the world. They're, they're only only better than Phillies fans. Phillies fans are the worst fans. <laughs> and then it's Chicago Cubs fans. Um, and then probably Yankees fans, I would probably guess. I would, I would put, I, I would not want to neglect Red Sox fans. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about Red Sox, yeah. I was anyway. I was actually just walking through a uh, Chicago cemetery where I, I found this very touching. There's one of those, you know, whatever you call the like wall that has niches in it that you can put like a container with somebody's ashes in it. There's one in this cemetery that is like the, um, the back wall of Wrigley Field with like the scoreboard. So it's like a kind of Cubs fan, oh. a Cubs fan only thing. And something about it, I was like, you know, I don't understand like being buried in a cemetery or and headstones and that kind of thing. But I feel like if that is a thing you want, like wouldn't like the idea that you would want to be to be together with other people who also wanted to listen to like, you know, WGN radio and like hear Harry Carey ineptly calling like the game, like, you know, like that, that I can kind of understand, like, you know, if you think that there is an afterlife that you'd want to be with other, <laughs> other Cubs fans. 
If I had the option, I'd definitely be buried in center field of Dodger Stadium. (laughs) Take my body. Use me as compost, Dodgers. I will feed you. Feed the grass. All right. So since we're talking about composting our bodies, I think that the podcast episode is over. I think you're you're probably right. Um, So one thing, like, let's try to remember next time that we should talk a bit about the, um, uh, about the old ones. And yeah. um, uh, Because we have that great, the Wolverine point of view section, the Wolverine like sees um, uh, the in, the injured old one, and then brings Heather over to help him out. And uh, uh, anyway, it's kind of awesome, and we should like catch back up with that next time. We should catch back up with that, and then and also talk about that article that you sent me from <clears throat> London Review of Books about yeah. um, uh, which was a book review of like Neanderthal, like um, Neanderthals living amongst and within. Uh, 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 early homo sapiens and yeah. and the diversity of like the homo uh, genus, I guess. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. And um, yeah, so um, one thing to plug, and I will actually probably just mention this at the beginning, like record something to go at the beginning, but um, we're gonna be uh, on a live stream event, Hillary and I, um, with Daniel Aldana Cohen, and um, the and Sean Estelle for Shred Magazine, which will be next Wednesday, March seventeenth. Correct, seventeenth. Correct. correct. Um, eight Eastern, seven Central time, um, which would be five Pacific, and um, uh, six Mountain, and um, that'll be an an event. Uh, Shred Magazine is uh, an online space that is launching in, in the next, it, like it should be launched now um, for uh, leftist organizers and creators and people who are trying to do good things in the world. Um, and we will be talking about the works of Kim Stanley Robinson and the utopian ima- imagination, essentially, correct? Yep, yep. I think it'll be fun and um, we... Uh, we'll be talking with people who are big KSR fans and who weirdly also listen to this podcast. Weird as it may seem, we do have hundreds of listeners scattered around the globe, including a new uh, friend of ours who emailed us, JF from Montreal. Hello, JF. We appreciated your email. A new person who donated the show. I can't remember her name, but we do appreciate your donation. That's very nice. And um you can, as a fan of the show, you can follow us on Twitter at Podcast on Mars and email us at maroonedonmarspodcast at gmail.com. And you can even leave us voicemails on the Anchor FM app. And that's all you can do. <laughs> Those are the limits. <laughs> okay. Um, so next week we will be discussing the next two chapters, um, Elga and the Hunter Spring, the Hunger Spring. The Hunger Spring. And... Um, We'll see you then, and hopefully we'll see you at the Shred Magazine launch party event thingy majig uh, next Wednesday. That's right. It'll be fun. It's all going to be fun. There'll be a link in the show description for um, how to how to watch. Yeah, live, live, live. Okay, thank you for listening. Right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.